We recently received a significant donation check from a bank drawn from the IRA of a donor. There was no info in the check or the attached documentation for how to thank the donor, nor did it say that the donor did not wish acknowledgement or thanks. We contacted the bank to see if we could get contact info for the donor, and they could not provide that to us. We searched our own donor database. No luck. What should we do to acknowledge and thank? You are not alone. A lot of organizations run into this. Uh, you know, Andy and I were just having a side <laughs> conversation, right? Sometimes Curse you, you get, donor yes, advised donor, funds. Donor advised funds, right, are notorious for it. Um, sometimes you will see uh, corporate this oftentimes can happen even with like corporate giving programs or corporate foundations, right? Where you say, oh, here, here was this, you know, this was earmarked. This was designated by one of our employees and you don't know who the employee was and you want to thank them, right? So you see this in a lot of different ways. Um, I guess one of the things I was thinking is recognize that sometimes donors want to remain anonymous. Maybe they actually really don't want you to be contacting them. So like there's a part of it you have to come to some peace with if it is not naturally like provided to you. But because this didn't give you any direction, what I would probably do if I were in your shoes is two things. One, I would send a letter to the bank, a thank you letter to the bank and and say, will you pass this along to your donor who was kind enough, right, to to give us this gift? They may or may not do it, but at least you've tried. The other thing is always, always make sure on your website, on your social media, in your materials, you say, you know, we we appreciate you know, these donors, and we also have a pool of anonymous donors that that we appreciate for what they've done. Like, I mean, at least acknowledge in a, in a group, like, thank you to our anonymous donors. So they still feel the love if they pay attention to you and just do it kind of quietly and covertly. But I think the best, most direct way is ask the bank, can we send you a letter that you'll pass along for us, right? And most organizations are willing to do that. Um, and if they aren't, well, it's kind of out of your control. There's not much else you can do. Nope. I mean, the other thing, too, is because it came from the IRA of a donor, it may have been um, something that was dumped after someone died. So so IRAs are sort of complicated in that if you if you pass away while you you're being paid out from your IRA, but your spouse isn't old enough to take money out of the IRA, um, then that becomes taxable. But you still need to take the money out. So that could be a sort of a tax protection thing that you're getting money from that IRA directly, in which case maybe the donor doesn't want to be acknowledged because they're not really that engaged with you to begin with. <laughs> they're just, they're just, you know, I don't know, give it to the whoever, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything. The podcast about everything nonprofit with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Shurick. I'm here with my fantastic co host, Stacy Wedding, and we're here to answer all of your nonprofit related questions. And we call the podcast Nonprofit Everything because we really want to talk about everything that has to do with nonprofits. We Stacy's really an expert in a whole lot of areas, including boards and development and staff relations. And my expertise is a little bit more on the organizational development side, as well as finance and legal and accounting and things like that. So we really want to kind of capture all of those different questions that you might want to ask us. Today is actually our 93rd episode. It's going to drop on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving this year. The questions that people ask us 
are kind of evergreen, right? Where we've answered over 500 nonprofit questions that are all available on the Nonprofit Everything website. So if you joined the podcast sometime in the last year or so, there's a whole bunch of episodes you've never even listened to. Um, There's some good stuff on there. And part of the problem is once we're approaching episode number 100 and we're getting closer to a thousand questions answered is that it's nobody wants to just sort of listen to everything and figure out what's on what episode. So one of the things you can do is you can go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage And way down at the bottom, there is a search box and you can type in any word that you think you might have something about. So for example, if you type in gala and hit the search button, you end up with nine different podcast episodes that have been tagged with the word gala so that you can get more answers about things that that we have been asked in the past about um, our favorite topic gala events. So that's one of the ways you can dig into all of these old episodes that are all still out there and all pretty much still relevant. If there's not something on there that you've seen, and and again, the way the podcast works is we only respond to questions. We don't make things up. We only answer what people ask us. So you can send us an email. You can go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage and click the ask a question button. There's a form there. Um, If you do it that way, I just found another um, stack of stickers. So if you want a Nonprofit Everything sticker, send us your uh, mailing address. Yeah, go to that, ask a question, ask us a question, or just say, hey, give me a sticker. I'll do that too. (laughs) And we'll mail you a sticker. Or you can go old school and leave us a voicemail. We've got a voicemail line. That number is on the Nonprofit Everything webpage, which is a good way to find it so you don't crash your car writing it down. And we haven't come up with like a catchy jingle to remember it either, but it's 702-900-4656. That's 702-900-4656. 4656. So you can call and leave us a message. That's a good way to get questions to us. You can hit us up on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, You can call us, you can text us, whatever way you can get to us. Uh, That's great because we really want your questions so that we can answer them on the podcast. This is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. If you're not an AND member, that's the best way to support the podcast. We don't have a Patreon. We don't take donations. The reason that the podcast exists really is to be a, a program of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So if you like the podcast and you like what I, what you hear, go ahead and join Anne. That's that's sort of the point of this whole thing. So go join Anne. Check out their website. It's AllianceForNevadaNonprofits.com. And with that, we're going to jump right in. So, Andy, we have two 990 questions. It seems like Form 990s are on people's minds. (laughs) Maybe they're due. Yeah, let's see. (laughs) So anyways, we will start with the first question, but then kind of roll into the second one. So first question, we just found out that 990s are supposed to be e-filed. What is everybody else doing about this? We've only ever just mailed them. Yeah. <laughs> what is everybody else doing about them? they're running around with their hair on fire, yes, right? Yes, just just like you are. So <laughs> it's like, wait, what? They're supposed to be what? And and it, they you know, I don't know that the IRS did a good job communicating with nonprofits about this particular thing. Cause the it's actually been in the works for a long time. It's been in the works for like five years. Oh, really? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, but just like I mean, remember when remember when they first introduced the nine nine the the nine ninety N the postcard? Yes. And they'd never had that before yes. and it was new. The same kind of thing. It was like they talked about it five years before and no one ever like in the sector like wait, this is a thing? Nobody found out about it until like oh, when they were supposed to file it. Like, I mean, thank God it's super easy. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not hard. But so, so yes, the 990 
all of the 990s. So 990N, which has always been e-filed, the 990EZ, the 990 regular old 990, the 990PF, if you're a private foundation, all of those need to be e-filed. There's one little loophole if you're um, if you are reporting on a fiscal year that ended on July 31st, 2021 or earlier. So if that's the end of your fiscal year for this next 990, you actually can have a one-year extension if you're doing the 990EZ. You have to ask the IRS for the extension, but they'll allow you to file a paper 990EZ for one year just if you're in that last. That's like the end of it. Everybody else has to file it, e-file it. So easiest thing to do on this one is to go to the IRS webpage and type in IRS or type in 990 e-file, right? And it'll bring you to a whole bunch. It's kind of hard to find it. Um, we'll put a link to the show notes about exactly where to go, but basically, and this is a lot like filing all kinds of other uh, tax returns. So like your, your 1040, if you ever, if you use like tax prep software yourself and there's always the option to e-file and it's like 19 bucks and you right. click the button, it's basically that exact same thing. So it's like a turbo tax for nonprofit for this process. It can be. Okay. So there's two different ways you can do it. So one of them is to use something like that. So there are a handful of companies in this list that I'll put on the show notes. The list is actually shows all the people that are authorized to e-file for 990s for the 2020 tax year. So some of them are tax software, just like like you mentioned, where you just you type it all in, it does the math for you, it spits it out, and it says, hey, would you like to e-file? <laughs> it like asks, right? You have to. <laughs> Plus the button to e-file, right? Other ones actually just provide forms that you just type. You do them on paper like you normally do, and then you just type the answers in onto a form. It'll check your math for you. And then there's a button that you just submit through their service to e-file it. And that one's like really inexpensive. So, and and the one of the ones that does that is actually a nonprofit. They've been doing it for years. Um, but they they have a form. You put the information in. Actually, if you're if you're under a hundred thousand dollars in assets, you can do it for free. And they've got a sliding scale that only goes up to like I think if you're like a ten million dollar organization, it's like two hundred bucks or a little bit over two hundred bucks. So it's not super expensive. Um, the pros are that someone's checking your math for you, which is always good. Cons are still, I mean, it's two hundred dollars that you or you know, or fifty dollars or twenty five dollars that you weren't planning on spending, but it's, it's, you know, that the IRS got, it's funny, like the, the IRS's webpage that explains it. Like it's, it says it like, it's this like awesome thing that's, you know, they like really trying to sell it. Yeah. Like you'll know that we've received it and it's been accepted. And you're like, that's not what I ever care about. Like, I don't, that's not, I don't care. (laughs) Well, and from what I've read, you know, this list of sort of approved like programs or e-filer programs Mm -hmm. that the IRS has, it sounds like they very much, I mean, from at least the way the IRS markets it, that it helps streamline the process, simplify, make sure everything is in the right categories. If you're missing data, sort of alerts you. So sort of some of, I don't know if that's accurate. It probably depends on which one you choose, but that sounds, I mean, to me, I, I hear that and think that what, what is the, to me, that seems like a simpler solution. So I think what I'm trying to wrap my brain around is in a day and age where we're going to electronic everything, what is the pushback for someone not wanting to do it other than spending that whatever nominal to, amount, just a chain. Just, is that the only pushback? That's is really that the, I mean, that's, okay. that's the really the only pushback. I mean, honestly, like, and it's, you know, this is a totally different conversation. The U S is like the only country in the world that makes you pay for tax preparation software. Like everybody else, like the government provides that for you. And like, you just go on the website and you do it and it's done and you don't pay anything because they want to collect the money. And here lobbyists have made it so that TurboTax is a thing, right? They, they have all that money. They need to keep that base. And so they've convinced legislators that it needs to continue to exist. Um, 
if you work for Intuit, go ahead and give me a call. I'd like to bring you on the show. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yeah, baby. seriously. If you if you've got a better answer than that, yeah. it's just greedy. If I yeah. you know if you tell me it's just greedy. So it's it's basically the same playbook for this too. So, but for most nonprofits, you're not going to see any difference because most nonprofits either you're doing that 990N or you're so big and you've, you're outsourcing this to a CPA. Right. Your CPA has access to all these tools and they can e-file it for you as part of the package. They shouldn't charge you. I mean, if they're charging you a bunch of money to e-file it, call them on it yeah. because you can look on the website and go, how come I'm not paying 15 bucks? Yeah. Right. So, so your, your CPA, your tax, whoever's doing your 990 for you, they, your bookkeeper, whoever it is, they have access to that if they're working for a firm and they should be able to provide that as part of your services. This is really only going to catch that group of people that were doing the 990 EZ and were doing it, you know, they had a board member who like, you know, has a green eye shade thing and likes to play around in Excel <laughs> and wants to do it themselves because they think they think they're saving a little bit of money. That's really the only organization that's going to bother. And honestly, that person's going to be super geeked out about like trying to figure out how to use this new thing anyway. So I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. Just don't get what the worst case is that you don't know what's happening. You try to file it by mailing it and you won't be able to, right? Because in other tax forms, it says, now that I'm done, what do I do? Right. Right. And it's like, send it to this. If you live in California or Nevada exactly. or Oregon, send Here's it to this address, this address, right? It's going to say something very different. Yeah. It's going to say it must be e-filed, yes. right? So, so there everyone, is no option. Yeah, there's yeah, going to be no, no address yeah. to mail yeah, it to, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so that's the worst case scenario is somebody just doesn't understand it, tries to mail it to the wrong address and ends up missing turn filing their 990, which is the perfect segue to the second half of the the second yes. question, which is related to 990. Yes. Right? So in this question, we had someone say that it, it has come to the attention of the rest of their board that their treasurer has not filed their organization's 990 <laughs> for the past tax year and possibly for several years. Lovely. What are the potential repercussions and what is the best course forward to rectify this? <laughs> I bet you have a lot of thoughts on it. Well, so I want to back up before we even get to the questions. And it's like, it's come to the attention of the rest of the board that the treasurer has not filed the tax of <laughs> the 990. It isn't the treasurer's job to file the 990, <laughs> right? It, the board should it's be reviewing and approving. The board's and, yes, job to make sure that job, the 990 yes. gets filed, right? So the first thing I would do is make sure that you've got some kind of board process where you know what you're supposed to be doing in each board meeting. Like, and so there's, there's, there's plenty out there. If you look on the internet, you know, if you call Stacy, she can provide one. If you call me, we can provide, I can provide one there. You need to have each board meeting has to have a, a set of activities that you're doing in it. One of them is approve the 990 and make sure that it gets filed. Right. And that happens once a year. And it's an action item on the board agenda. Like, was the 990 approved? Yes. Was it filed? Yes. Right. And the board says agrees. Yes, we filed it. If the if if you've given the responsibility of actually licking the stamp and putting it in the envelope or actually now yeah, yeah. figuring out how to e-file, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah, that is, say, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, doing that, then that person can like show you the receipt that they got or like whatever it is to make, you know, whatever the IRS gives you back that says it's been e-filed, right? So you have that and you can put that in the board minutes to make sure it gets done. So so don't put it all on the treasurer, right? right. If, and, it and is again, a collective responsibility, but don't you think it yeah. has, I mean, here's the deal though. And I just got to call this out because I think a lot of organizations fall into this trap, particularly smaller or all volunteer led organizations, right? They are stretched so thin, right? Because they're, they got yeah. no staff managing it. And so you got volunteer board members who half of them don't even know they're supposed to be doing this annually. I mean, which is a whole other topic for discussion, right? But, but then you've got, it's, they just in their head think, oh, the treasure. And it's easy to kind of like 
say, oh, the treasurer. But it's just like the same thing. If your treasurer, let's say, is, you know, not caring for your financials the way they should be done and doing the financial reports and is stealing money from you, that's that's your that's on you, the board, right? <laughs> like, I get that you're going to like point fingers at the treasurer, but yeah. you should be doing your fiduciary duties. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, all the more reason to have a, some kind of checklist, because yes. if it's something you're only going to be paying attention to four times a year. Right before the board meeting and during the board meeting, if that's the only attention you're going to give it, you absolutely need to have some sort of checklist that says this is what we're supposed to be doing in this board meeting. You know, the umbrella organization that uh, Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, you know, falls under the national um, organization. They actually have a great I was looking at it the other day. It had like annual board checklist and it's got 10 items and we can link to that. Perfect. And it's got this is one of them. Right. And so literally have that every year as your checklist, right? Keeping yourself, you know, as an organization on duty. And to your point, Andy, take it a step further and like map out, oh, we're going to have four or six board meetings or whatever, 12 board meetings this year. Here's like, you don't have to know all the specifics of what's going to happen at every meeting, but hey, this meeting is our annual meeting. This is where we elect officers <laughs> right. per our bylaws or whatever, right? right? right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to answer the, the actual question, yes, <laughs> now that we've sorry, berated we you yes, for asking yes, the question, yes. um, the, the, to answer the, the repercussions are is that you get your nine, nine you get your 501c3 revoked. So if, if you go for five years, see that, I think it's it three. three I actually looked it up. If yeah. you go for three years, thank you, Stacey. If you go for three years, um, and, we'll and it's three consecutive years, three consecutive years without filing a 990, you get it revoked. The first time you get it revoked, and correct me because you seem to know this really well, the first time you get it revoked, you can actually send it all in and ask and say, oops, we messed up. Can we have it unrevoked? And they will unrevoke it. If you miss again, you get permanently revoked. And that means that you have to go through the entire 1023 process again and create all of that thing. Plus all of the time that you weren't, this is the fun part, all of the time that you weren't filing the 990, it doesn't get revoked on the last day. It gets retroactively revoked. So the time that you weren't filing the 990, all of those donations are no longer tax deductible. Think about having that conversation with any donors. Oh, Oh, by the way, three years ago, we stopped filing our 990s, which means we got our our our, uh, 51C3 revoked. So even though you put this as a tax deduction on your your tax form, it wasn't actually a charitable deduction. So sorry, right? You're never getting another gift from that organization again, and you're probably not working in the sector again. So so here's the, the, the the only silver lining to this is the IRS put this rule into place not that long ago. And when they put this revocation rule, they put in not that long ago. And so right now they have a backlog of about a million organizations that are in line to be revoked. And they don't just automatically revoke. They publish it and then they give you the opportunity to respond. So there is a massive backlog at the IRS right now of dealing with revocations and things like that. So, so there's a chance that you won't even find out that you've been revoked until it's too late. So it's something you should definitely check. See how long it's been since you haven't done that. Ask forgiveness immediately. Make sure that you get all the paperwork you've got turned in as fast as you possibly can and put a process in place to not mess it up again. Because it could be catastrophic for your organization. The other thing, and I didn't, I didn't realize this. I was, so when I was doing a little bit of uh, research online, it was saying that you have to pay for, um, Every day past the due date, right, you must pay a penalty of $20 a day for the return being late. I I didn't even realize that happened, I guess. And there's and it says um, it that that same penalty applies if the organization does not give all the information required 
or the return doesn't get the, you know, the 990 doesn't give the correct information. So, and then there's a cap. So it, it also talks about there's a cap on there, right? And I think it's, um, I wrote this down, I think it's up to like, it's like $10,500 or 5% of the organization's gross receipts for the year. But I'm still sitting there going, man, that is that is not fun either, right? <laughs> They're serious about it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly some things have changed. I feel like this stuff used to be a little looser, but it's it, they've tightened their belts a bit. Yeah, and, and it's not, honestly, it's not the IRS's main focus. The IRS is underfunded. They're understaffed. They, they're focusing on trying to get as much revenue into the system as they possibly can. And nonprofits are a terrible place to go get revenue unless it's totally fraudulent, right? So if a nonprofit's fake and just doing bad stuff, that's a big, that's a big potential pot of money that they can get if they can catch that. But for your normal run of the mill, I'm actually really a charity. We're just bad. Um, we're, we're bad at record keeping, yeah. bad at doing what we're supposed to do. Like the likelihood that the IRS is coming back at you is pretty low, but it could be really bad for you. Our organization just hired our first executive director. We decided to hire her as an independent contractor, not as an employee, as it saves us the expense and headache if of payroll processing, health benefits, and all of the other things that come with having an employee. Someone mentioned to me it may be illegal to have this person as a contractor versus an employee. I'm not sure what they mean by that, and now I'm worried we have screwed up. Can you or a guest expert shed some light on whether someone should be classified as an independent contractor versus employee? Mm, so I, I honestly can't think of a situation where an executive director would be an independent contractor. Like that's number one. I was going to ask you if you'd ever seen that. Yeah, like, I don't know if I've ever seen that. Not, yeah. not all. So, so, I mean, so the hard part about answering this question is it really depends on all of these additional factors, right? So the specific scenario that this person is in um, and and how how they behave. So the, the IRS provides two big basic rules. So one is who gives this person the work? Who says this is what you have to do? And then who gives this person like the rules about how they do it? So it's like what who's giving them the activities to do and then says this is how you need to do the work. So let's think about somebody that that's clearly an independent contractor, right? So an independent contractor is like an attorney. Like you've got a nonprofit, you've got some legal stuff you need to handle. So you 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 hire an outside firm that's an attorney that specializes in law stuff and you say and instead of saying like I need you to write a contract and I need it to look just like this, you say help. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And and they they come in with the expertise of how to do all those things. They have the work product. They they bill their own time. Once they've done it, they send you a bill for how much time they worked. And that's the end of the relationship. It's like a it's like a it's like an individual transaction every time you need something new from that person. Yeah. And you did. I think the point there, right, you don't control their work product, right? You don't mm -hmm. control when they do it. If they want to, you know, I mean, you can say I need this in three weeks or whatever. Right. But right. like you don't care if they do it at midnight or at you know, 10 a.m. Right. or whatever. Right. So there, so the, the IRS actually, so the IRS really only provides those top two rules. Yeah. Like the, the, like who's, who's telling them what to do and who's telling them how to do it. Um, beyond that, I mean, it's really, really fuzzy because you've got all of these different, you know, think about the number of potential work scenarios you have. It's infinite. And so the rules are very fuzzy from there on down. Um, most of the time, an independent con so so the way I read the question, you know, we decided to hire as an independent contractor because it saves us the expense and headache of payroll processing, health benefits, and all the other. 
you're just being a jerk. Like that's, yeah. that's the wrong reason to do this. Right. You, if you're trying to sit, hire somebody and save money, like maybe rethink your business model, maybe come up with a little bit more money before you hire an executive director <laughs> so that you can pay this person to actually get the work done. Um, cause if, if you're just trying to save money on, on but payroll tax, like, because what happens? So if you're an employee, the company pays the payroll tax. If you're a independent contractor, the independent contractor is self-employed and pays self-employment tax, right. payroll tax, all their own stuff. So you're basically saying, you know, I'm going to give you $50,000, but by the way, you have to pay another $10,000 just to work for me. Well, right? and the other thing is I would also challenge those people who think they're saving money by it. You're not always saving money. And I can say this from a lot of contractors I know, they have higher, you know, they they charge more because they know they have to cover their own taxes. So instead of maybe you getting them at a whatever rate, they're, they charge more like, because they're like, I got to cover all my own taxes. Like I'm only going to be making whatever I bill you for this and like a hundred bucks. And I only give pocket 75 after taxes, whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like, so I think, I think there's this misnomer of like, Oh yeah, we're saving all this money. And, and at the end of the day, ethically, it just isn't, right. Like what you're saying, like, it's just not the right thing. Right. That shouldn't be the driver. Right. So, so that, you know, when Stacey and I, before the question talked about, do we get a guest expert on this one? And and the, the reason we're not going to get a guest expert on this one is because every scenario is totally different. So ED, I'd say 99.9% of the time that person needs to be an employee because the board is directing their work and the board expects them to do the executive director job full time as as their role. So there's no way to like phone in an ED job. Like, I don't know how you would even do that. It would be really, really strange. That feels easier to me on other positions than an organization, right? Like, but not ED. Yeah. Like you can hire a company to come do your janitorial work, right? You don't have to hire somebody. Marketing, like whatever. Yeah. And HR. Yeah. And and so like some of the other things, like if you're getting federal grants, one of the things that the federal grants require is if you have somebody working for you, they have to work for the company um, unless there's a reason, a compelling reason that they can be an independent contractor. So the federal government, wants, so they won't even pay it. Like, so if you've got a federal grant and they've given you a $2 million to do a thing and you have this executive director as an independent contractor, the, the federal, the department is just going to say, sorry, we can't reimburse you for that because that person's an independent contractor, which means they don't really work for you. Right. Yeah. Which is going to be a big problem for you down the road. So, so like get, if you really think like, yeah, but well, I'm right. Right. <laughs> Hire an attorney who knows what they're talking about. Explain to them the entire scenario. They're going to ask you infinity questions. It's going to cost you a bunch of money. And they'll be able to say independent contractor or employee. And then you'll have some legal cover for when the IRS comes after you for non-payment of payroll taxes for the last five years. And the other litmus test, I think, to do is when you hire, like with any vendor or contractor you hire, they have other clients, right? It's generally, in general, you are not their only <laughs> line of business. And so that's the other thing from that's what one I've... Of the other right? Criteria, it's one right? of the other criteria, right? That And yeah, that, hey, if you're the only one that they're, you know, buttering their bread, then that's probably not a good thing either. So, yeah. And the IRS has on their website has a lot of resources on this exact question because this isn't a non-profit, non-profit specific question. This is a business specific question. So they've got tons of resources and it goes into excruciating detail. You can actually, there's a form you can file with the IRS that says, am I an independent contractor? And you fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires and you send it to them. And six months later, they'll send you an answer. <laughs> so, so you, so, so this is like, there's, there's a lot of resources out there. We'll put in the show notes, we'll put the link to the 
independent contractor or employee question mark thing on the IRS's page. And you can do your own research and kind of make your decision yourself. Cue the sad music. We've gotten to the end of the podcast. So that's it for this episode. Thanks again to everybody that sent in your questions. We really appreciate that. If you heard something today and you wanted to know more about it or there are some clarifications or we got something wrong and you want to uh, let us know about that, please reach out. NonprofitEverything.com is the website where you can uh, contact us there. We're also available on Facebook, Twitter, uh, by text and email, and you can call us at home too. Um, We've got a phone number, 702-900-4656. That's 702-900-4656. If you want to just leave us a voicemail, that's an easy way to do it. Um, And with that, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.